What you just heard is a member of the White Mountain Apache tribe in Arizona providing safety and health tips regarding COVID-19 in the native Apache language. In June of this year, the White Mountain Apache tribe had the highest rate of coronavirus infection per capita in the United States surpassing New York City. In this episode, we will learn more about life on a reservation, hope, and resilience in Arizona during the pandemic. Welcome to the podcast of The Plague Year. I'm your host, Terry Shoemaker. Podcast for The Plague Year is a deeper dive into contributions made to the Journal of The Plague Year, a project of Arizona State University. Available online, the archive allows anyone to submit artifacts regarding life during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mining the many photos, videos, reflections, and other submissions to the archive, this podcast, Podcast of The Plague Year, selects some interesting topics and explores the world of the pandemic life. Join us as we journey across the world to see how the pandemic has influenced the daily lives of people everywhere. We're in late October 2020, and populations across the globe are experiencing spikes in COVID-19 cases. There are now, as of this recording, over 40 million cases worldwide, with over 8 million of those cases reported in the United States. A cursory look into a journal of the plague year reveals that the pandemic is non-discriminatory. All of us are affected. Yet the reality is that COVID-19 is having more impacts on certain populations in American communities. In this episode, we partnered with Arizona State University's Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict to spotlight the White Mountain Apache tribe in eastern Arizona. The center partnered with the Henry Luce Foundation to provide rapid relief funding to marginalized communities in the Southwest. I spoke first with Sarah Lords, the Communications Outreach and Events Coordinator, to get more details regarding the rapid relief program. So can you just introduce yourself very quickly? I am Sarah Lords. I do communication, outreach, and events planning at the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict at Arizona State University. Sarah, thanks so much for speaking with me. And for our, our listeners out there who don't know, we have this, this wonderful institute on Arizona State's campus and that does this fantastic work called the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict. I'm, I'm hoping you can just share with the, with the listeners, what is the center and what's that work about? Yeah, thanks for having me. So the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict, or CSRC, is a research center that works on advancing research and education on how religion and conflict and peace affect our world, our day to day. So that includes things like politics, technology, the way that we perceive society, public life, that sort of thing. And I've been very fortunate to partner with the center on a couple of projects, uh, and it's always been fantastic work. So recently, the center came across a project that is now the ASU Loose COVID-19 Rapid Relief Project. What, what's that about? Yeah, so we were approached by the Henry Luce Foundation, essentially with the task of how can we help provide support for some of the most marginalized communities in the U.S. that are being impacted by COVID-19. So we at the center took inventory of our space in Arizona and recognized, hey, uh, you know, marginalized communities are among the most disproportionately impacted by public health crises overall. And we have several of those communities in our state. We've got migrant and DACA mixed status families. We've got refugees and asylum seekers, immigrant communities, Native American communities. So what we did is 
We put out an invitation for different community organizations that were serving those marginalized populations to apply for funding so that they could, in essence, um, do the work that they were doing. We just wanted to empower them um, to complement and expand their capacity. So you you have these different communities that receive funding. Do you have do you have any sense of the type of things that the funding was used for? Yeah, definitely. So the organizations that we're working with through this grant are serving marginalized communities who some of them apply for state benefits. Um, some of them don't have the opportunities to. So a lot of the funding went to just meeting basic needs. It went to rent and utility assistance, providing food boxes, PPE, cleaning supplies. There was a need for Wi-Fi assistance for unaccompanied minors and yeah, just basic needs packages. And as some of these marginalized communities, um, because you were kind enough to send me a list of some of the groups that received assistance, are uh, right in Arizona in the, the Native American reservations. Can you speak a little bit to some of those groups? Yeah. So the populations that we serve can kind of be broken down into three clusters. There's a set of organizations that were doing dealing with undocumented DACA and mixed status families and unaccompanied minors, as well as asylum seekers. And there was a separate sort of cluster of organizations that were working with refugees and immigrants who have already been in Arizona. Is there any way for people who are listening to help contribute to this project? Or is this just the loose funded opportunity and, and that's that's it for the project? Yeah, so... The project sort of began with us just, you know, wanting to provide grant funding to organizations that were doing important work with marginalized communities and, you know, people who were disproportionately impacted by COVID. The project also has a component called the Southwest Stories Initiative, which seeks to elevate the stories of these vulnerable communities. Our lives have just kind of shrunk down into not leaving home, trying not to go out. And I think it's really easy in that space to not consider what marginalized communities are going through and what their needs might be. And so one thing that we were hoping to do is to tell the story of the work that's being done by these organizations, tell the story of what it's like for, you know, a refugee who was working in the hospitality industry. Now that that's not so much um, a market, you know, to have their job cut, to not only face the anxiety of COVID, but to really face trying to navigate a really complicated unemployment and benefits system. It's super complicated for Americans here, you know, and Arizonans, and thinking about just the barriers that exist for, you know, communities that are hardworking and have faced a lot of adversity. And now the adversity that they're facing with the pandemic is just intensified. What we hope to do is to share about the work, share about the communities, and then, you know, for people who hear this podcast, they can reach out to the organizations as individuals. They can volunteer, they can donate, they can bring in-kind goods. Sarah, thanks a lot for speaking with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Terry. As part of the Rapid Relief Program, the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict is collaborating with a Journal of the Plague Year and the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication to raise awareness about the marginalized communities that were assisted during the pandemic. 
Joining this Southwest Stories project, we at the Podcast of the Plague Year were granted the opportunity to spotlight one Native American community in Arizona, the White Mountain Apache Tribe. The White Mountain Apache Tribe is one of numerous indigenous peoples living on designated reservations in Arizona. To get a better sense of tribal reservations in the United States, and specifically in Arizona, I spoke first to Professor Rebecca Sosi, Regents Professor of Law and Faculty Co-Chair of the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program at the University of Arizona in Tucson. We have with us today Professor Rebecca Sosi, who is Regents Professor of Law, Faculty Co-Chair, Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program at the University of Arizona. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Sosi, for speaking with me this morning. For our listeners out there, could you tell them a little bit about your work and what you do? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Terry. Uh, so I actually specialize in the rights of Indigenous peoples under national law, which we would call federal Indian law, under tribal law, the law of the indigenous nations themselves, and under international human rights law. So I also teach in the areas of environmental policy and cultural resources law and critical race theory. So I do a variety of things in my university appointment as a professor. I also work with the students directly in terms of uh, we have students at the University of Arizona from many Indigenous tribes across the country and throughout the world. Uh, so in my class right now, I have several students joining us, Indigenous students from other countries because we're meeting by Zoom. And it's so interesting to see the students um, from here, from Indigenous communities, talk to students from world Indigenous communities. I was at Arizona State University for 22 years and was the founding faculty uh, director of the Indian Legal Program at ASU, and I love that program as well. So I've been doing this work for many years at both Arizona universities and serving all of the tribal nations here in Arizona and across the nation. Your work seems absolutely so impactful and important for Indigenous peoples. For our listeners, can, can we start and go really, really basic? For those uh, listening who don't really understand why there are reservations, why there are different laws on those reservations, and, and what we're talking about when we talk about tribal peoples, can you just give us some really, really basic information so that our listeners uh, have a good context for what we're speaking about? So in the United States, there are over 570 federally recognized Indian nations. That status is a special political status between the United States and various indigenous nations that were here when the United States was born. They already existed as nations. They predated the United States. Many tribes here had treaty relationships with Great Britain, and they also entered into treaties with the United States. So the status that we're talking about um, under federal Indian law is called the status of a domestic dependent nation. So that nation is an independent sovereign, self-governing under its own laws, and under the protection of the United States federal government. And so what we call that relationship today is the trust relationship. So the United States makes sure that the indigenous nation has its territory, 
which is under the federal trust. So that is technically not even part of the state. So reservation land and here in Phoenix, we might uh, look at the Gila River Indian community, Yavapai Nation or Fort McDowell. Those reservations are the territory of the nation. They're not part of the state of Arizona, even though they exist within the exterior boundaries of Arizona. So federal Indian law governs the relationship between the indigenous nations of the U.S. and the United States government. Today, tribal nations also have intergovernmental agreements with the state. So we have a very interesting mix of both local and national governance authority. For example, casinos on the reservation, those are operated by tribal governments under federal law, uh, but they also have compacts with the state of Arizona. There are 22 federally recognized Indian nations in Arizona that have land holdings in Arizona. And probably between 25 and 30 percent of the land that we would call Arizona is actually tribal trust land. That's absolutely fascinating. And I would guess that many of our listeners actually maybe don't even know you know, that there's over 570 recognized tribal nations. The reservations themselves, uh, I know you mentioned there's 22 in Arizona. Are the reservations across the United States or are most of those in the Southwest and in the Western part of the United States? That's a great question, Terry. So in most of the large land-based tribal governments are either in the Plains area or in the western part of the United States because of the way that the East Coast was settled. So there are reservations in the East. Um, They tend to be smaller and in some cases maybe less visible because For example, in Arizona, you'll be driving down the 101 and it'll have a sign saying you're on the land of the Gila River or Salt River. And sometimes people don't see that in the east because the communities are smaller and the reservation lands are smaller. Some states do not have any reservations at all. So all of the indigenous peoples were moved out of many states in the east. Yeah. uh, As someone from the Commonwealth of Kentucky, when I relocated to Arizona, I was quite surprised that the signs, as you mentioned, even driving sometimes on 101, 202, and you're now entering into this kind of territory. And I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. And so I imagine there's a lot of complications when it comes to law because of the nature of of the treaties, right? That you have independent self-governing nations, but that are territorially kind of subsumed into another nation, how complex does the law get as as it pertains to uh, the rights of these people, but then also kind of the relational parts of it? And again, we don't have to deep dive into this, but is it really, really complicated? So I think my students would tell you that it is because they just turned in their first assignment and they expressed that it was very complicated. <laughs> and so what I generally tell them is at the root of it, it's very kind of basic. It's that indigenous nations 
in many ways, like foreign nations, are sovereigns under their own law. So they pre-existed the United States. They're not parties to the U.S. Constitution, nor are they directly limited, for example, by the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. That's a compact between the U.S. and the states. So the treaties are the compact between the tribes and the federal government. And for those tribes who don't have treaties, there's an analogous relationship through the agreements that they've negotiated over the years. So the Bungert case that recently came out involving uh, the reservation of the Muskogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma, was there still a reservation there? Well, the common wisdom had it for the last hundred years that the reservation was extinguished um, before Oklahoma statehood. So nobody really thought there was a reservation there. And yet, as the Supreme Court said in that case, and Justice Gorsuch authored the opinion, the federal government never extinguished that treaty reservation. It created it and never extinguished it. And therefore, the reservation exists today. So that means that the laws have to be considered. And yes, the jurisdictional laws are complicated because we're talking about tribal governments and their laws within their territory and how that affects the rights of their members or others that might be in their territory, both criminal and civil jurisdiction. The rules are distinct for what we would call Indian country under the federal statutory definition, which obviously includes trust reservation lands. This is absolutely fascinating, and I think that you've done a really, really good job of setting up a context for us so that then we can think about the recent outbreak of COVID-19. Am I correct in, in my thinking in that when statistics are released about outbreaks in the United States, that tribal people on their reservations are not included in those national statistics? Data is collected throughout the country in a number of ways, but the health data for Native people living on tribal trust lands on the reservation is generally not treated the same and not available in the same ways as the data for uh, state citizens. And having said that, Tribal citizens are also federal and state citizens, so I'm not saying that they're not. It's just the fact of where they reside that makes the data on tribal peoples within trust territories not accessible in the same ways as information in the state. Professor Sosi, this has been so informative. I thank you so much for your time and your work. This is vital work that is that is so important right now specifically, but all of it's absolutely so vital for the, the health of Indigenous peoples in our country. Thank you, Terry. And I just give my heartfelt thanks to everybody at Arizona State University. So I'm very grateful and so honored to talk to you today. After speaking with Professor Sosi, I spoke with the tribal chairwoman of the White Mountain Apache tribe, Gwendina Lee Gatewood. We are with Gwendina, and will you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your position? Good morning. Thank you. My name is Gwendina Lee Gatewood. I am the tribal chairwoman of the White Mountain Apache tribe, and my 
election was historic in a sense that I was the first woman ever elected to the highest seat in the government of our tribe. I don't take it lightly, and I know I have a lot of obligations, and I'm humbled and honored to serve in this position. I am from the White Mountains. Uh, we are about three and a half hours northeast of Phoenix. Our reservation is 1.6 million acres. We have a Sonoran Desert, and then you go up a little higher, and you're going to get aspen trees, mountains, and snow, and rivers, lakes, and streams. So we're very blessed to be in this part of rural Arizona. We have a population of about 17,600 enrolled members of the White Mountain Apache tribe, but there's other people waiting to be enrolled or they, you know, they're, they're here with us. So we number a lot more than that. Thank you so much for that that introduction and kind of situating the context for us. Congratulations on your, your election as the tribal chairwoman. That's absolutely fantastic, and I'm sure you're doing a wonderful job. On the reservation, you mentioned that there's a bit more than 17,000 members enrolled. It's got to be quite diverse of an experience for uh, on such a large piece of land for people in just kind of an everyday life. We've uh, highlighted other reservations that don't have running water and seem to be quite under-resourced. What's, what's it like at the, the White Mountain Apache? The daily life here consists of, of the communities that go throughout the reservation. We have a very isolated community called Sibiku, and they are about 45 miles west of White River, which is our capital here in, in Arizona. They have about a population, I would say, about 2,500 to 3,000. They have very limited resources. There, There is one grocery store, one gas station, and there's one way in and one way out. We have body service, and that affects the ability of our children to learn, especially during COVID-19 when most of the kids have to learn from home. We're running into problems of, I'm losing signal. I can't even log on, uh, you know, those types of challenges. And when you get that, you know, kids are going to be kids. They're going to be like, oh, it's not working. You know, I'm done with this, but it can't be like that. And then you have uh, Carrizo, which is probably about 15 miles west of Sibiku. That community has had its challenges. They have challenges with water. There's about 75 homes there that have to have their water brought into them. Most of the water, it comes out black when you turn on the faucet and, and it has a lot of sediments in it. Their water has been tested and that water has traveled to Washington, D.C. A, a handful of times to show the leaders there, hey, in small town America, there is one town that still does not have potable drinking water for its people. In the summertime, we get faced with, with uh, shortages of water. In fact, during COVID-19, we had a shelter in place and a lockdown, and people started experiencing a shortage of water. Well, you need water to clean and to wash your hands for hygiene purposes. So we had to interrupt that lockdown and allow people to go and get the necessities that they need. So those challenges are still existent here. Before, when we lost a loved one, we would sit with the dead in, in a wake, and it went either one night or two nights. And all kinds of people from all over the reservation would come and sit with the family, mourn with them, pray with them. 
COVID came, all that went away. And and now, you know, you just have this direct service of, of burying a, a loved one and not everyone can go. I know it affects our people. It, it does affect me also. I, I lost a brother-in-law to COVID-19. My sweet sister sent him to the doctor and she never saw him again. And she never got to say, you know, goodbye in person. He was flown out to Tucson and, and there was no visitors. I know it, it had brought a toll on her and it still does today. And it does me too, because I really appreciated my brother-in-law and all that he did for everybody. He was a, a forester of sorts and he planted several million trees here and his trees would get sent out throughout the United States to be planted elsewhere. I, I like to think of it in terms of he's not really gone, you know, he's still with us. I'm sorry to hear about uh, your loss with your brother-in-law. What kind of statistics have you all seen with your people with uh, contracting COVID-19? And do you have any type of stats of, of how many people you've lost uh, because of the pandemic? Yes, we have uh, lost 41 individuals to COVID and they range in different ages it's been uh, quite a challenge. But as of um, yesterday, our number of deaths is 41. Since April 1st to now, we've tested 11,243. Of that, 8,637 have been negative. 2,455 have tested positive. And of that, the number of recovered is 2,392. Right now, currently, we have 22 active cases on our reservation, and we do have isolation quarantine sites established for those that want to go. It has really challenged our, our reservation, but our goal was to flatten the curve, and, and we did do that. We all remember life before COVID, and, and you listeners out there, you probably remember what it was like you know, the freedom that you had. And now, you know, you, you do things a little bit differently, but it doesn't have to be so dismal. You can find ways to, to make things work. I'm really proud of our people. They did self-initiated lockdowns. They, they really took it to heart that we needed to do our part. Our Apache people are centered on prayer and we continue in, in that. And I say that in a most humble manner. Our, our faith has been tested, but we, we rise to that and, and continue in prayer and, and move forward because that's what our ancestors did. Our ancestors laid the foundation. They worked so hard for us, the beneficiaries of today. They prayed for the children not yet born back then. We have to be mindful of that. We have to take that and broaden our future and do what we have to do to, to bring positive results for our people, especially our children. I did want to ask one follow-up question. When, when you're ref referring to prayer, and, and I was trying to listen you know, to some of the words that you say, Lord, Creator, it, is the, are, are most of the people there of a Christian persuasion? Yes, and then we have our traditional people they practice the traditional ways, but that doesn't mean that they don't respect the Christian beliefs or vice versa. Just one more question, if you will. What's, what's the overall sense right now? Is it a hopefulness that the statistics are better and you're going to beat uh, this pandemic? Or is it a little bit of uh, weariness from pandemic just taking so long? 
I, I believe it's a little bit of both. They they are happy that the numbers have are are have dropped. And then there are some that are like, oh, we're in the clear now. I said, no, we're not. We are not. We we have to still wear a mask, wash your hands, because there's, you know, the virus is still around and we don't have a vaccine yet. And there's also those that are that are like, you know, we should just stay shut down and, and not have any activity. And I have to remind them, as good as that sounds, and if we could afford it, we could do it. But we have to realize that the tribe also has things that it needs to continue and we need to pay for our expenses. Opening up, we, we have to do it in a way that is mindful of the protocols that CDC has given us. We, we practice those and, and move forward with business. That's why we have to practice social distancing, wearing our masks, washing our hands. If everyone will just do that, all the protocols will 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 continue to to improve. Rendina, thank you so much for your time for painting this picture of us that that uh, does give us an indication of hope, but also uh, does paint a picture where we're still in the midst of the pandemic and we're all still struggling. I, I wish you and your community the best, and I wish you the best as well as as you continue to to guide and and lead your people. Oh, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Thank you for this opportunity. Normally, I conclude episodes with personal takeaways from my interviews, but this week I thought that I would let Gwendina close us. As we concluded our conversation, Gwendina graciously offered a blessing for our listeners. To all the listeners out there, thank you for learning more about the White Mountain Apache people. We keep everybody in our prayers and may you have a beautiful day and may our creator give you the things that you stand in need of. Many thanks to our guests in this episode, Sarah Lords, Rebecca Sosi, and Gwendina Lee Gatewood. This episode was hosted by Terry Shoemaker, produced and edited by Amelia Michelson, graphic design by Carson Shoemaker, administered by Eli Tabot and music by Quentin Daly. This podcast for the Plague Year is a complement to the Journal for the Plague Year, a project of Catherine O'Donnell and Mark Tabot, both faculty at Arizona State University's School for Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies.